and welcome to the Time for the Good News podcast, the place where you'll hear nothing but good news. We are your hosts, Susan and Dan Grantfield. Hi and welcome to episode one of season two. We're really excited to be back with more good news stories for you this year, aren't we, Dan? Certainly, I'm looking forward to delivering a great range of podcasts through 2022. Yeah, so welcome back to everyone who's been listening over the last year or so, and a big warm welcome to any of our new listeners. Now, something that's new for us this year, we're obviously going to be sharing nothing but good news with you, but we're going to make it easier for you to get access to the the episodes um, and to connect with us. So we've created a website, timeforthegoodnews.co.uk jump on there you can listen to the latest episode and you can sign up to get uh, all of our new episodes dropping into your inbox as soon as we have published them so we're quite excited about being able to connect with you in in a new way so please check that out timeforthegoodnews.co.uk okay let's get started dan you've got our first good news story of the year it is, and as usual, it's about animals from me. Yes. So, as you know, I we delivered a story about uh, dogs being man's best friend a while ago. Mm. But Spain has now, as of January the 5th this week, I think, or last week, sorry, um, has decided now that pets are officially going to be sentient beings under the law. Were they um, not always sentient beings? <laughs> no, the law's going to recognise them as sentient yes. beings. Yes. See what I mean? I get yeah. that, yeah. And are no longer classed as objects. They were classed as objects in Spain before, you see. Mm. Um, objects? So objects, yeah. Okay. Or material goods. Right, okay. So they're now part of the family. Um, and not classed, as I said, as material goods. So positive for the protection of animals in Spain, but they're not the first. Germany did this in 1990. All right, okay. Uh, France in 2015, and Portugal in 2017. But we have all been in the UK... There's an animal welfare bill in process at the moment because we were subject to some EU animal protection rules. But of course, because we've left the European Union, we've now got our own animal welfare bill. Mm -hmm. And it specifically says sentient. We've got Ah. plenty of animal protection laws about welfare and looking after them. Nothing that classes them as a sentient being. Right, okay. Um, So that's happening in this country. The first animal protection law in the UK was in 1822. And it was called Martin's Act, and it was to protect uh, farm animals from cruelty. Oh, Sheep, horses. When did you say 1822? 1822. So we've got a long record of animal protection, but this is the the one that actually recognises them as sentient beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also interestingly includes lobsters, octopus, and crabs. So Colin the crab, yes. Oliver the octopus, <laughs> and Lawrence, your pet lobster, are all now sentient beings. And I think, as you mentioned to me, mm. that might be to prevent the cooking of these animals alive. Yeah, yeah, that was something I read, because yeah. lobsters are often cooked alive, aren't they? Which is, yeah. oh, sounds horrendous, yeah. Yeah, so going back to Spain, in Spain, a judge will now be able to look at what the animal needs mm. um, if there's a divorce as a companion animal. Mm. So, and make judgments on the cost of care and who the animal should go to to ensure it's uh, ongoing. Yeah. So almost like you would do with children. That's it, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was a nice little, nice little story to see Spain, mm. you know, um, passing some good laws to protect animals again. And as you said, this sentient thing is quite, mm. quite interesting. And in the UK, octopuses, sentient beings. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Great. Well, thanks for getting us started. Um, I am going to move us to Turkey, the country of Turkey. So in Ankara, in Turkey. 
Um, the the garbage collectors, bin men, if you're in the UK, um, have started a library from books that they found in the garbage they've been picking up. Cool. So so one one guy, um, Durson Ipek, um, noticed that in some of the trash he was picking up, there were a lot of books which were basically destined for landfill. So he started this library, and initially it was just for the um, the, the uh, garbage collecting workforce and their families but it's now been extended for local residents and and it's increased the library has moved from 200 books to 6,000 books so residents are now going and they're taking their books and and it's got a whole it is a library it's a whole whole collection you know service where you go and I think you can borrow it for two weeks Um, and they've got it all in sections and now schools education programs and even prisons are requesting books from this library. Amazing. So it's become quite a public service, actually. Mm, mm. Um, now, the thing, when I looked into this a little bit more, because I love books, I love mm. libraries, I love mm. bookshops, I love anything to do with books, so this is this is why I was attracted to this story. But do you know how many books are discarded and go to landfill every year no. in, in, the, no. in the world? 320 million. I, I thought it was a, a, an oddly strange thing to throw a book in the bin. I don't yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if I've ever thrown a book away. Mm. Um, you kind of, you, you, I mean, Oxfam has its own bookshops yeah. as well as its normal charity shops, yeah. isn't it? So it always seemed wrong, uh-huh. this kind of thing, you know, that happened, like burning books or yeah. books you didn't agree with or throwing books away mm. or censoring books in certain countries and things like that. Yeah. Always seemed like a wrong thing. So yeah. I'm surprised that many are discarded. It's mm. interesting. I know, I know. So uh, when when these um, these guys that set up this library were were asked, you know how it was going, they said their only regret is they didn't start it sooner. Well, um, so I love that. I think that's fantastic. So recycling story as well as uh, provision of um, you know learning resources and things for people in various institutions yeah. as well, isn't it? So. And and I just love the. You know, some a guy just going about doing his job, going, hang mm, on, mm. what's going on? I can do something about this and just taking the initiative yeah, to, to do it. Back to you. Back to sentient beings, interestingly. So the Cornwall Wildlife Trust has recorded 17 sightings of humpback whales um, in a fairly short space of time, in a year, I think. Now, they're once an extremely rare sight in the UK. Mm. And... Quite often nowadays when we see an animal that we're not used to, we, we say, oh, it must be due to global warming or climate yeah, change. Yeah. But apparently it's because, the, the experts believe in this case, it's because of the resurgence of the population. So commercial right. whaling has been banned in, in a lot of forms since the 80s and 90s. Mm. And the whale populations have recovered. Mm-hmm. And that's why they think we're starting to see more, than, more of them off our coast. Not a change in the ecosystem, oh, okay. which is great. Mm. Um, so also, you know, I, lo- I looked into this briefly. So commercial whaling peaked in the 60s and 70s. 80,000 whales a year. Mm. Oh, now it's down to less than 5,000. There's still a few countries that do scientific stuff. And there are some countries that still eat whales. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to list them all because this is a good news uh, yeah. kind of thing. So now whales, particularly close to my heart, was when I was a kid and I travelled through the U.S., I went to a place called Mystic in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And Mystic was a commercial port. And uh, the USA's oldest commercial vessel is there, which is the Charles S. Morgan, I think, or Charles C. Morgan, which is an old whaling vessel that you can look around 
and, mm. and have a look in. And Mystic's quite an interesting place. And I went whale watching not far from there. So it's kind of went whale watching, you know, I think I was 14 with Lex, my mm. uh, American friend and his family, and saw two or three whales while I was on this boat. Mm. And I just remember the boat rocking as these as these animals swim around it and, and just amazing. Yeah. But at no point did you feel scared or, or mm. threatened in any in any way. So, I mean, it's great to think that there's more of these creatures in the sea, mm. and especially in uh, our UK waters. So keep an eye out if you're off the south coast or Scotland as well. Killer whales have been seen, dolphins, a lot more cetaceans, mm. um, which is fantastic. Yeah. Really good news story, that one. And I love, as you said at the start, that this isn't down to global warming. Yes. It yeah, isn't a problem. Yeah. It's, it's actually, problem. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. because of some good stuff that's yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. And do you remember Wally the Walrus as well? You know, he was yeah. quite a cute character. Yeah, yeah. I remember they built him a pontoon. And I can recommend to our listeners to, have a look, to look up Wally the Walrus because quite mm. a this huge Arctic walrus mm. sinking these little boats because he just wanted to get out of the water. Yeah, yeah. But they built him a pontoon in the end. So yeah. quite interesting, these, these animals appearing. Amazing, yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring us back on to dry land. Um, so I came across this story about a movement towards reclaiming spaces that are currently being used for billboard advertising in cities. Now, at first you might think, really, is that really a big problem? I certainly, when I thought about you know cities that we've lived in and visited, billboards don't immediately come to mind when you think about them. However, that's part of the problem because they're prolific, they're everywhere. Um, and more and more billboards now are digital billboards. Yeah. And, and an average billboard, digital billboard, uses the equivalent of 11 households, U- UK households, energy. Oh, right, okay. What? I mean, that's incredible. So, that's what a digital billboard uses. Yeah, yeah huge amount of energy. So there's that side of it. But the other side, which is really where this, where, what I took from this story, is that having all of this advertising... Um, is for a start it can be quite stressful we don't we're not even a lot of advertising subconscious so you're not even aware of all this constant stimulation but it's there so from a well-being point of view to not be constantly bombarded by messages about what we should be buying is potentially a good thing um, but the other thing and, and this movement which in the UK there's there's an organization called the ad free cities network and and there's lots of similar organizations around the world they're looking at the amount of space that these billboards take up and how these spaces could be used for more healthier, um, more sustainable um, and, and, and used for good um, as opposed to just lots of advertising. So they're looking at alternatives for commercial advertising and reimagining the spaces. So, for example, building climbing walls, um, murals, so actually getting local, local artists to, um, you know, if it's, if it's buildings that the billboards are up against... Um, creating these these murals that are actually attractive and it made me think of the mural trail in Glasgow so Billy Connolly um, a Glaswegian um, comedian that I'm sure people all over the world well I know people all over the world have heard of him the big one the big one um, so for his 75th birthday BBC Scotland um, commissioned a series of portraits that are on walls around Scot- uh, around Glasgow you can go and see them that's this is the kind of thing that this this movement is looking at doing and what they're doing is they're asking local communities what they want in these spaces um that you know where there where there's potential on these billboards so as far back as 2007 um sao paulo in um brazil was the first city in the world to almost completely ban corporate ads on billboards really they they removed 15,000 billboards 
and 300,000 shopfront signs. Um, Grenoble in France in 2014 replaced all billboards with trees and community notice boards and it was to, in their words, reduce citizen stress. So this idea Mm, of constant mm. bombardment of of these advertising messages. And in um, 2020, Amsterdam became the first city to ban adverts promoting high carbon industries. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So there's quite a lot of different elements to this movement, um, and we'll put a link um, on our Facebook page, and and um, you can find it on the website as well about just what's going on in your local area. But for me, there's lots of things. There's the energy thing. There's the you know the 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 environmental messages that come from some mm. of these high carbon industries. And there's just the making our spaces nicer spaces to be, and we've talked about that in previous podcasts. Mm. It's interesting when you watch films, sometimes sci-fi or projections of the future, when they quite often show cities with huge projections of people talking on the side of buildings. Mm. And more like it feels like Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like more often than not, this talking head that's on the side of a skyscraper is selling you something. Yeah. So this is a kind of a route to prevent that type of, mm. of thing happening, I suppose, mm. and not to be bombarded with images and. Yeah. selling images and selling messages yeah. as you as you walk around places yeah. because so much of, of of that type of advertising is is subconscious so we're not mm. consciously aware of it mm. but and if you've ever watched darren brown yeah, yeah of the, course. the um i wasn't saying magician he's more than a magician um i can't remember the, the term he used to describe what he does but you know he does hypnosis Mystic. and stuff a lot of his experiments or a lot of his stuff that he's done on TV has been that subconscious messaging mm, so mm. it's all around us even if we're not aware of it mm, but mm. I love the idea of you know these mural trails or climbing walls or trees or whatever just something a bit more natural mm, mm. there was there was that thing in Glasgow that was like a wall of green do you remember? yeah uh, on Royal Exchange Square they've had them in, in Manchester it's like a living uh, yeah. it's like a big plant mm-hmm. But it's about the size and shape of a, of a billboard. billboard. I think it was yeah. automatically watering itself or something. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not quite sure what it was for. I don't know whether it was a, I don't some know. kind of advanced decoration or it was actually yeah. supposed to be yeah. producing oxygen. I don't know. Possibly. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or soaking up carbon yeah. dioxide. Yeah. Uh, but no, interesting. That mm. sounds like a great thing. Because billboards are pretty annoying and actually distracting yeah. a lot of the time for drivers. You know, there's one in Gifnick, mm. massive one that's at the traffic lights, mm. you know, that mm. type of thing. That'd be great if that was something more interesting. Mm. Okay. So, a corporate good news story. Right. I like this one. So, Aviva Investors, part of the investment arm of a, a large insurance company that we all know, um, their global asset management business have announced plans to deliver significant woodland creation and peatland restoration in the northeast of Scotland. Mm. Uh, and they aim to capture 1.4 million tonnes of carbon. Wow. So they've acquired 6,300 hectares of moorland in Glen Devon. Mm-hmm. So a hectare is 10,000 square metres, uh, and a, a hectare is 2.47 acres, so 63 million square metres. So 1,800 hectares is going to be peatland restoration. Now, we talked oh, about yeah. the benefits of peatland restoration mm-hmm. and the peat ag story that we talked about. 3,000 hectares of new planting, mm-hmm. you know, 1,000 hectares of productive conifer, and 2,000 hectares of native woodland. So I think the productive conifer, conifer is potentially sustainable timber production. 
but the 2,000 hectares of native woodlands right up my street from mm. the point of view of animals and, and bringing species back. And Biodiversity. Like and everything, yeah. So this is going to make a massive contribution to the Scottish and UK forestry planting targets. And it forms part of Aviva's Investors Climate Transition Fund. It will create jobs and um, the facilities in the area for public to visit will be enhanced as well so it's not going to be a closed off area it's going to be the access is going to be widened right. and you've been there so it's the area around the mountain Clapna Ben all right which we went up with the MacArthur's yes. and sat at the top and had a picnic you know the very oh, rocky yes. top right okay so it's that area around there now if uh-huh. you remember it's kind of quite bare moorland mm-hmm. which a lot of Scotland a lot of people think that's the natural landscape it's not it's from you know farming and forestry and things like that so it's a kind of regeneration of the natural landscape in that area Brilliant. so great to see a big company like that actually mm. as part of their probably net zero mm. corporate plan but it creates great benefit for everybody yeah and and i think we can we can all be very skeptical about corporates and, yeah. and what they claim to be doing yeah. and greenwashing and all of these yeah. but that sounds like that's a real positive they also have factor. the cash to do it this yeah. is the point you can't rely on government to do everything so yeah. you've got the cash to do it yeah and it's part of a package of funds mm-hmm. much like you know the one that you've invested in the impact investment funding yeah like that. so mm. Good story, like that one. Yeah. I kind of linked, I've got a story about solar power, which um, is, it, it, it's it's kind of, again, it's a, a movement, you know, a little bit like what I was talking about a minute ago, um, but the movement towards um, revolutionising solar power. So, um, you know, I don't know about other people, but for me, I think of solar power, I think of big solar panels, you know, on roofs or in fields or, or whatever. Um, and or there's deserts, in the middle of deserts. Yeah. <laughs> Not massively attractive, but there's huge advances in solar technology, meaning that the um, the technology means there are so many more applications for solar power. So whether it's clothes and wearables, fabrics, so you can actually so Mm. the 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 solar panels, the photovoltaic cells, can be developed in such a way now that they can be woven into fabrics. So imagine tents that are Mm. solar powered. Mm. Um, windows, there's a, an organisation that are create, have created windows where the window functions as a window but it also generates electric, it, 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 it sort of captures energy mm-hmm. um, so it's generating energy as it's um, doing its job of being a window um, what were some of the other things, yes, yeah, so solar powered jackets um, buildings themselves becoming solar so instead of just being panels on the building there's something called the building integrated photovoltaics I'm sure they must exist already Tesla, Tesla yeah, have yeah, produced yeah, things yeah, yeah. yeah so you know it's not necessarily that all these things are brand new but I think the key thing here was um, that there's so much more scope for it and solar power can become attractive so we've got mm, there's designers mm, and architects mm. are actually looking at how can we make this stuff look mm, beautiful mm. Um, and more functional um, and when you think about so in the US um, the Biden administration has committed um, to um, I forget the year now was it 2050 50% of energy being coming from the sun mm. now last year or 2020 only 4% of US energy came yes, from the sun yeah. And the cost of installation now has, has massively dropped by about 70%. And mm. so more people are, are, are moving in that direction. So the sun yeah. is the, uh, this boundless, you know, produ- producer of energy, isn't it? Yeah. So, and, you know, and, I, and I can see vehicles being powered by it. So I'm sure some of these planes 
that fly around the world as solar have solar um, yes you know like I think there was a virgin one and yeah. these things that fly very slowly uh, with, go around the world without stopping mm-hmm. I mean you can see cars being powered by solar and mm. it, you know human wearables and stuff remember you talked that story about the nightclub yes the heat generators mm. you know we're machines we produce heat we produce you know mm. um, so harnessing that under something you're wearing and in fact movement mm. think about a pedometer yeah if you can get to the point where you can develop something that, mm. that generates charges your phone while you're walking along yeah instead of having to plug in yeah it's fantastic Great. things like glass tables that you might have you know either yeah, indoors yeah. but certainly outdoors as well yeah. to actually be cap, you know yeah, yeah, generating yeah. energy and and something about in this article that i read was it used to be that cost was the was the big sticking point with yeah. solar but yeah. now that has you know the cost is massively reduced the new conversation is well it doesn't look that great it's not that attractive so that's yeah. the next sort of yeah, you need you need Gucci and Ralph Lauren exactly. and, uh, and Boss and Dolce yeah. & Gabbana to get to get into the wearable uh, technology well, stuff. Though. There's a Dutch fashion designer called Pauline Van Dongen um, who is who's kind of leading the way on this, um, and she she develops smart textiles and and clothing. Oh right, cool. Yeah, I'll watch out for that. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, I'd happily wear something. As long as it didn't look like a spaceman or something. Well, this is the point. They're trying to make it um, accessible, I guess, for mm. people to to want to wear. So yeah, so. More on that probably to come in the future. Good stuff. Um, and I've got one final story, Ooh, which um, extra story. This slotted in. I've there. just slotted in. You didn't. Yeah. I was going to do that, did you? Mm-hmm. Like slotted. To <laughs> keep you on your toes. This one. The headline really jumped out at me. The world's first three D printed eye. 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 As in. Not I as in yes in Scottish, no. but no, as in an eye. Yes. Oh right. So uh, in November of twenty twenty. Steve Vares uh, became the first person in the world to receive a 3D printed eye at Moorfields, Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. It's a fully digital prosthetic eye. Is it connected to his yep. brain? Yeah. Optic nerve? Is it connected yeah, to his optic that, nerve? No, no, it's a prosthetic. Yeah, but he yeah. can see through it. You said it's yes, functional. it's digital. Ah, so you can see through it. So I don't know the ins and outs of how wow. it's connected. That's for our Robo listeners to go. In. You know, no. So and something I thought this was so it's much faster to produce, um, which is great. Um, but the other thing which I thought was really wonderful is it's not just adults. This Steve is in his forties, but it's not just adults that potentially mm. need prosthetic eyes. Um, and for, for children it, it, it's really invasive it used to be they had to make a mould of the mm-hmm. eye socket mm-hmm. which just sounds, for glass eye you mean yeah sounds yeah. unpleasant and for children they usually had to put them under general anaesthetic oh God, they don't have to do this now um, because it's all done via scans of the eye right. so much easier but I'm fascinated that this thing works to a degree unless it's a link to his other eye maybe you're asking me quick you're now exposing me for not having looked into yeah, this I wanted more to detail. Find out more detail but actually I couldn't find much more detail the, the Murphy's Eye, Eye Hospital press release was quite limited so I don't know you know maybe listeners maybe you can go and explore Is and come back digital to digital maybe that it moves naturally yeah and, and maybe the pupils change or something. Yeah, like. it looked the picture. Yeah, he, he would not be able to tell that he had a prosthetic eye. It looks because you know people can, you, who have hearing problems can have something connected yeah. to their oh, brain. Uh-huh. Or if it's actually, yeah, I'd be fascinated. Yeah. Fine, I should look into look that. into it, and you can report yeah, back. Well. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's a quite an eclectic mix of stories we so, brought yes. you for our first episode of the new year. Finishing with a bionic eye. Bionic eye, exactly. Who knew? Um, 
so I think that's all from us for now remember as I said we're very excited we've got our time for the good news uk website have a look on there sign up um, it means that we can send you our each episode directly um, and also means we can just engage in a bit more of a conversation with you tell your friends tell your family yes tell everyone share shout good from news the rooftops. for 2022 <laughs> right anything else from you Dan no bye from me and bye from me